0: Hello, you're listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast. Whether you're at work, driving in your car, or getting your workout on, we hope and pray that what you hear today will fill your spirit. Come join us as we walk through God's Word together. Lord, in prayer, before we attempt to walk through His Word. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much again for this opportunity to stand before your people. God, it is not lost on me, and I do not take it lightly that what I am endeavoring to do is not an easy task. And so, God, with that in mind, I ask that you would sit me down and that you would stand up fully within me. God, as I say oftentimes, I don't need your help to preach this. I need you to preach this. Holy Spirit. Control my mouth, control my thoughts. Let only that which you would have me say be said. Let none of Charles shine through. Let all of you be put on display. And then God, as always, I ask that you would do through your word what only you can do. And that is make sure that as it goes forth, it does not return to you void, but that it accomplishes all that you sent it to accomplish. I assert And I declare that when your word is taught, when it is preached, it changes things. It is on that premise that I stand and pray in Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen, amen. Look, I always like to take just a few moments, and you know uh, me, I, I like to thank my family and my wife, Karen, and my daughter, Hannah, and Man, it feels weird because usually I say uh, Hannah and Jayla, right? Uh, and I always kind of thank them because of the time I have to pull away. Jayla is off at college and she's doing well. Thank you for those who have been asking about her and praying for her. Uh, but I do uh, want to uh, express, again, uh, gratitude to them for allowing me to walk in this calling and to step away so that I can take care of what the Lord has asked me to do. Additionally, um, one thing, just to kind of set the stage here before we get into this, uh, the questions that I've given you um, are intended, and I don't want to tell you how to, to engage with the sermon, right? What I don't want you to do, though, is to lose sight of hearing and listening um, because you're trying to capture and write, right? And and, and I understand. We, we want... I'm not I'm not knocking that, but what I really would hope is, and what you would be and hopefully is, is intentional as well is really allowing the word of God to kind of wash over us. One thing, and this is my own personal testimony, so I don't want I'm not trying to impugn anybody's uh, uh, practices. But one thing that became obvious to me is that I took a lot of notes in church that I hardly ever went back and looked at. That's just just me. A lot of notes of sermons, and I was taking some really good notes until next Sunday. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to make somebody feel like less of a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, is, that, is that I, I, I think that, the, the, that what we should get after is wanting God's word to work on us, right? More than us being able to show I took some good notes about what the preacher said today. And now, don't get me wrong, you can do both. I'm not saying that you can't. You can take down notes of things that are particularly impactful. But that's why my sheet here is more about questions, less about the points that I make, and more about what is this, how is this word interacting with you? And, and as I'm moving through this, what is the Spirit saying to you? And hopefully these questions kind of draw that out, right? And the good thing about these is that these questions don't necessarily have to be answered here in the moment, right? They can be answered later on so you can engage fully. Now, again, if you're taking notes, please, I'm not telling you don't take notes. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying let's be intentional with listening. And the reason why I'm, I'm saying that is because even though this is just the introduction kind of part of Colossians, just kind of the, salutatory and, and, and kind of boilerplate information that Paul usually has in his letters, it is rich with doctrine, with implications, with admonitions, and with insight that if we're not careful and we think we gotta hurry up and get to the meat of the letter, we will have missed the way Paul is kind of setting the table, that makes sense, right? And so we're going to look at verses 3 through 14 here, uh, and it's kind of a a long section. Bear with me. I think it's good for us to kind of read through it, or I'll read through it, and and you can follow along. And then we'll just walk through it, and and I'll endeavor not to be here too long, but but it's some good stuff. So for a a sermon title, I want to talk about the gospel received and effective. Colossians 1, 3 through 14, reading from the ESV, you find these words, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of truth of the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen? Amen. Look, just just a, a side note, that is how you should read scripture when you read to yourself. Don't just be, uh, you know, Jesus said, and then wonder why, man, that just doesn't do anything for me. But read it like somebody talking, like somebody writing. I would love for somebody to send me a letter with all of that in it. Man, I'd feel like I could take on the world after that. Now, let's go ahead and get into a little bit of background for the text, and pastor covered some of this, and I'm going to revisit some of it and, and expand on some other things, but... <clears throat> Just a little bit of geography. Coloss was located about 12 miles from Laodicea and also about 100 miles east of Ephesus. Right? These are familiar biblical cities. It lay in the southern part of ancient Phrygia, which is present-day Turkey, and had become the adopted home of Oriental or Eastern mysticism. Now, Colossus was on a main trade route, and as such, it drew many Jews, it drew many Phrygians and Greeks to the city. And this mixture of backgrounds made Colossus an interesting cultural center, where the latest ideas and the latest doctrines from the East were being discussed and considered. And caught in the crosswinds, of this cultural milieu is the church at Coloss. And as we continue through this study, what will become clear to us is that the Colossians had some concerns and some fears for their everyday lives, and and they had begun to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. They felt like, to get through what they were dealing with and what they were going through, that they needed something more. They needed something extra. The the gospel of Christ wasn't enough for them. When they believed in Christ, they believed in the gospel but still found themselves looking for more. And caught in this cultural melting pot, they began borrowing from the ideas and the doctrines of the surrounding cultures. They Dibbled and dabbled in Jewish philosophy and Greco-Roman idolatry. Hmm. But before we come down too hard on the Colossians, we do the same thing. The moment... Life throws us a curveball, the instant things aren't going how we want them to go, the late nights when worry, doubt, and fear have us tossing and turning, when our prayers don't seem to be making it to the throne room of heaven, when our devotion to our daily devotion doesn't seem to be making a difference, we'll find ourselves right in line with the Colossian church. Taking a pinch of pagan practice, a dash of demonic doctrine, a smidgen of secularism, and adding that to our relationship with Christ. And then we'll whip in some worldliness and fold in some philosophy and pepper it with some pop culture. All because in our eyes, the gospel of Christ, and by extension, Jesus himself, is not enough to meet all of our needs. And church family, what was true for these Colossian believers 1,959 years ago is just as true for us today. So first, let's look at the gospel being received. Verse 3, Paul does a couple of important things here. He lets us know First, that the Colossians are regularly in his prayers, conveying very early the supremacy of Christ in two ways. He first describes God as the father of Jesus. And what Paul is doing here is he's highlighting the link that exists between God and Jesus. He's reiterating that Jesus is the son of God. Secondly, Paul calls Jesus Lord. Now I'm going to do a little bit of Greek here. In the Greek, that's kurios. And what Paul is doing here, I believe, is reaching into two cultures to make one statement. In the Greek Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the word Lord, L O R D, the all caps Lord, Yahweh, the covenant keeping God, is referred to as Kyrios. But then also in the pagan society, they called all of their gods Kyrios. So Paul is taking this term, Kyrios, and he's saying, Look here, Jews, you know what I mean when I say Kyrios covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, and look here, pagans coming from a Gentile background, you know what it meant in your culture when they said kurios. I'm taking both of those and applying them to Jesus and saying that he is the kurios. Hmm. And so by linking and equating, he links Jesus to God as God the Father, God the Son, and then he equates Jesus to God by calling him kurios Paul is reiterating the deity and supremacy of Christ. Lastly, and extremely important, and I think we need to get this sometimes we lose sight of this, and sometimes it causes us to lose sight of ourselves in the midst of issues and problems in our walk is that the Colossians are believers. There should have been a collective sigh of relief. The Colossians are believers, news of their faith, Paul says, in Jesus Christ has reached his ears. And this faith is being evidenced by not speaking in tongues, not performing miracles, but in the love that they had one for another. And because of the hope, the promise of new life in Jesus Christ. And this is important for us to keep in mind. Hear me now, track with me. Because what we see in this letter to the Colossians and what we often see in Paul's letters in the New Testament epistles in general is him making a distinction between concerns regarding salvation and concerns regarding sanctification. Hmm. What am I saying? What am I saying? I'm saying that salvation happened in a moment, in an instant, in time, immediately. The moment we accepted Christ, the moment we believed, the moment we said he is Lord and Savior, our name was added to the Lamb's book of life. Jesus says himself, Father, I thank you that those that you have placed into my hand, I'm not one of them. Paul says that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, that we are immediately saved. Upon the confession of Jesus Christ. It begins here. It's ratified here. But then we have to walk it out. That's the sanctification. I'm saved. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. Nothing can take that away. But now that Holy Spirit that seals me begins to sanctify me. What does that mean? Well, sanctification simply means that I'm being set apart. It means that the crowd I used to run with, I, 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 that I can't, some of those things just don't appeal to me anymore. All the things that I thought were funny, just don't, those things that used to be entertaining, yeah, the things that used to draw, yeah, yeah. Now, it doesn't happen instantly, Murph. The moment I say yes to Jesus, I still say yes to my flesh. Paul says in Romans 7 that that which I know I should not do, I run quickly towards. But those things that I know I should do, I wrestle with and I don't do. What he's talking about is the sanctification. Paul isn't concerned about whether or not he's saved. He's concerned about this work that the Holy Spirit is doing in him. And what conclusion does Paul reach and what is the conclusion that we should reach? He says, oh, that someone would deliver me from this wretched state that I'm in. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Who saved me. So what Paul often is dealing with And that's why I say this should be a sigh of relief for some of us is that the Colossians are believers. Now, don't get me wrong. When we get into it, the Colossians are doing some crazy things. The Corinthians are doing some crazy things. The Ephesians are doing some, you know what I'm saying? It does not mean that it's perfection. It does not mean that there's not issues that need to be dealt with. But Paul does a good job. And I like how he opens his letter with first establishing your faith has reached my ears. I know the gospel is active in your life. Now let's talk about your life. Right? Hmm. So he tells them that they are responding, and he tells them that every time that he prays, he gives thanks to God. You know, the father of the one and only Lord Jesus Christ, because he has heard about their faith in Jesus and how they are loving one another in the hope of and anticipation of a new life to come. That, by the way, is breaking into the here and now through them. This is what Paul is saying about the Colossians, in how they're now living with one another in community. But where did they get this hope? Where did they get this anticipation of a new life to come? That's causing them to live their current lives differently. Well, look at the rest of verses 5 through 8 where Paul says, look, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a fellow minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul is saying the Colossians have this hope and anticipation of new life to come, and the source of this hope is the word of truth, the gospel. And this new life that they are now living is a byproduct of that gospel. And the gospel isn't just bearing fruit and increasing there in Colossus. But this is happening, Paul lets them know, all over the world, everywhere that the gospel is being proclaimed, everywhere that the word of truth is going forward, it's changing lives. Uh Uh-huh. This brings me to my very first question. Has the gospel changed your life? I don't mean, has it kind of dusted some dust off the edges? Have you kind of stopped with some bad habits that you had? Well, you know, I I used to drink a lot, but now I don't. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that that's not a good thing, but I'm not talking about just some of the things that we kind of equate with, quote-unquote, clean living. Well, I used to curse. I don't curse no more. I didn't go to church. Now I go to church question is, has the gospel changed your life? Well, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? I'm asking, is the gospel producing fruit in your life in an increasing ongoing manner? Meaning that if your claim to fame is that you used to curse and you don't curse no more, okay, that's great. Glory, hallelujah. What else is the gospel doing in your life? You shed all of these bad habits the moment you were saved. Great. Glory to God. You've been freed from that. Day two. What did the gospel do in your life then? Unless you're telling me the only thing that was wrong with you is that you cursed. That you drank too much. That you smoked when you shouldn't be. You see how we do, right? And so we, we, we kick off and we shed these things that, let me just be fair and just be realistic, that there are some books you can buy, some audio tapes you can listen to, some places you can go, some therapists you can see, that can help you shake some of that stuff off. I don't need the power of Christ to stop cursing. What I need though is the power of the Holy Spirit to generate love out of my heart. I can hold my tongue in certain situations. I don't think anybody's going to burst out cursing right now. But that's not the power of Christ. Restraint is not the power of Christ. Christ came to change desires in the heart. It's not just, ooh, I shouldn't do it here. It's I don't want to do it anymore. Hmm. Has the gospel produced fruit in your life in an increasing ongoing manner. Now hmm, upon hearing this one might conclude look this gospel Paul says everywhere it's being preached is producing fruit in an increasing manner everywhere all over the world. It might make you conclude that this gospel is shown up amazing. I mean if it's able to do all of that Deacon McManus sign me up But I would wager to say that for most of us, this description of the reality of the gospel experience sounds foreign, sounds unfamiliar. Yes, I I, I, I had a profession of faith. Yes, now I can drink the juice and eat the cracker. But ongoing, fruit-bearing, increasing change in my life has not been my experience. And I believe that's because most of us have what I call a keyhole view of the gospel. Bear with me. It's going to take a little time. <clears throat> you know how it is when you look through a keyhole into a room? I don't, doors don't have keyholes much anymore, but for those of us that remember, when I look through a keyhole into a room, I can see some things. I can see it. There's a chair. There's a table. And those things are, in fact, in the room. But that's not the totality of what's in the room. And I believe that most Christians have a keyhole view of the gospel. Hmm. When it comes to the gospel, we tend to only see Jesus, sin, the cross, forgiveness, resurrection, Now, don't get me wrong. That's a good list. That's a a mighty fine list. And and, and I'm not saying that those aren't in the room, so to speak. I'm not saying that it's not there. It is there. But but what I am saying is is that that, that, that these elements alone do not comprise the totality of the gospel. I got to walk carefully some of y'all think where's he going? I'm not about to say anything heretical. Some folks you can put your pens down and what you about to do? Stay with me. I'm not this is not a new th- no. Hear what I'm saying. And, and be open to what I'm saying. Listen to this, right? Because when we narrowly define the gospel in terms of just Jesus' death on the cross for my sins, what that does, unknowingly, unwittingly, is it creates a self-centered, narrow Christianity because Jesus died for me. Oh, this, I don't want to mess. On the way here, I love the song, and I'm not, if you love the song, I'm not saying you're, you're wrong, but uh, he thought I was worth saving. So it it creates this image that there's some intrinsic something in me that made Jesus say, you know what? I need to come on down there and die on the cross for Charles Wright. Now, I know this, this messes with us because it feels good to think about a Savior who died for me. But what it also does, though, is it can make me be self-centered about the gospel because if I have a savior who died for me, then guess what else needs to be for me? The church service, how the music is played, what the pastor talks about. You see where I'm going? Because I've put myself at the center of the gospel well, if Jesus thought enough about me to leave glory to die on the cross, then surely the elders and the deacon boys need to listen to this concern I got. Because I'm one of God's favorites. This might be the last time I preach. I don't know. I'm going to get it all in. I'm going to get it all in. <clears throat> so if we've got this narrowly defined gospel that puts us at the center. Yes, Jesus is a main actor, but he's a part of the supporting cast because it's about me. He had me in mind when he died on the cross. That's a wonderful image. But let me tell you why it's such a wonderful image. Because it makes me feel good about me. It makes me feel good about me to think that Jesus had me in mind. Now, I'm not saying he didn't have us in mind. What I am saying is that he had me in mind, you in mind, you in mind, you in you. you he had the trees in mind. He had the earth in mind. He had the stars in mind. He had the cosmos in mind. He had. You, do you see what I'm saying? See, what we call the gospel in the Greek is the word euangelion, meaning Simply, the good news. In the Old Testament is a term that is most associated to announcements and good news that pertain to kings and kingdoms and battles. Uh The image is being that of a messenger returning from a battlefield, delivering an update to the people represented in that battle, regarding how their side, how their king, how their army is doing. Isaiah 52 and 7, we've heard this, but maybe you'll hear it in a different way. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, hang on to this, your God reigns. The image that Isaiah is painting is somebody walking along the walls of a fortified city, and as they're watching, as they're looking, they see a messenger coming over the mountains. Ah, if our messenger is coming back, he must have some good news. He wasn't killed in the battle. He wasn't captured. He uh, hasn't fallen to some enemy's sword. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the one bearing good news. That your God reigns, and so we see that in context, you and Galion, what we call gospel, is good news about kingship, about movements of kingdoms and battles. So it follows that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news about the kingship of Jesus Christ. It is the good news of the kingdom of God overturning the kingdom of darkness that has ruled and reigned through sin and death since the fall. It is the good news that Jesus is the king of kings who has taken his rightful place at the right hand of the father. It is the good news that Jesus' path to the throne, here it is, passed through the cross, and was validated in his resurrection. It is the good news that he has been given all power and authority by God the Father. And in that power and authority, he is setting all things back in order. Well, Minister Wright, where do I fit in? Because I thought he was thinking about me on the cross. Well, here's where we fit in. And those who believe in this good news, who align themselves with this victorious king, become citizens in his kingdom and get to share in his victory over sin and death. Hmm. And so the gospel isn't just about us affirming some historical facts about the historical Jesus that happened on a hill called Calvary. And it's not even just about us affirming some supernatural facts about the supernatural Jesus in an empty tomb. I thought about this when I was writing it down. I didn't even put it in my notes. I was about to forget about this. Thank you, Lord. Historically, no one will argue with you that there was a Jesus. No one doubts that he lived. We talked about this in the communion. No one says he wasn't crucified. There are other historians that are not of the Christian faith, primarily Josephus, who records the life and times and the impact of this one called Jesus. So history says, yes, there's a Jesus. Well, then you say, well, what about, what about the supernatural side, Charles? Because, yeah, history says that there's a Jesus, but what about the supernatural side? You said it's not just about history. I get it. Well, what about the supernatural side, about understanding that he rose from the dead and who he is? And I said, yeah, you got a point. But James tells us that even the demons shudder. When Jesus encounters the demon-possessed people, they all acknowledge that he is the son of God. So there must be something more to the gospel than believing in the historicity of Jesus and even in the supernatural of Jesus. And I'm convinced (laughs) that it becomes, and it comes down to this, how do we respond to the kingship of Jesus? Do we bow the knee? Do we pledge our loyalty and allegiance to him as king? Or do we stand defiantly before him, accepting his salvation, but denying and rejecting his sovereignty? Thank you for what you did on the cross, Jesus. I got it from here. And Paul says... That a person who has heard and believed the word of the truth of the gospel, the good news of the kingship of Jesus Christ, that person will be marked by a changed life. Let me also just insert here this here. I believe that this is at the root and the core why the church today is so lacking in discipleship. I don't mean one person to another. I'm talking about all believers to Christ. Follow me. If Jesus is a carpenter, a good teacher, a good man who had a special connection to God, who was teaching us a different way, who looked out for the less around him, and who spoke truth to power and was concerned about the greater good, and he died on the cross for me, Man, that's a great thing. I'm appreciative. But I'm not obligated. I welcome it. Man, that's awesome. I, I'm glad that he did it. And, and and if I get an opportunity to do something nice in return, I will do it. Because that was a pretty nice gesture, Jesus. But if it starts to make me uncomfortable, if it starts pulling at what I want to do and, and where I want to go and, and all these kinds of things, then, well... You just did a good thing for me, Jesus. But if my view of Jesus is all of that capped off with the king of everything, we call him the king of kings, the Lord of lords, then it's harder for me to then say, I can't be devoted to the king of kings. And this is why discipleship, I believe discipleship is rooted in how you view Jesus. If I think he's just a good guy who taught some good things and he's worth listening to every now and then, then I will pick him up when I want to and put him down when I don't want to. But if he is king of everything, We're going to find out later in Colossians if all that is was created through him, by him, and for him. Then my only response, as hard as it may be, as much as I might have to fight myself, as much as I might have to let go of some things and face some hardness and some difficulty, is to bow the knee before the king. Now I'm going to skip this part and go straight to my question. Question two. Mm. (laughs) I can't skip that part because i got to say this part. Just ask my second question. That's why you have notes. So after all of that, and I think it seems like a throwaway line a little bit. Paul goes on to acknowledge Epaphras, a fellow soldier on the missionary field with Paul as the one who had introduced the Colossians to this life-changing good news. And when you first kind of read it, it's easy to kind of just read right past it and just kind of be like, oh, okay, he shouts out Epaphras. But if you think about it, Paul is saying that what we have just spent the last 10, 15, 20 minutes talking about and painting the right picture of who Jesus is and understanding exactly what the gospel means and what our response then should be to the gospel, Epaphras is the one who rightly communicated that to the Colossians. How do we know he rightly communicated it to the Colossians? Well, because Paul says that their faith is reaching their ears and the fruit of it is evidence in how they're responding and how they're treating other people. What seems like just a throwaway line is a significant line. Epaphras took what had been invested in him and then turned and invested it in them and invested it in the right way, in a way that produced fruit in their lives. So the question number two is, is there anyone now in the family of God who would call you their Epaphras? Is there anyone who can point is there anyone you can point to, rather, whose life has been changed because they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ from you? Hmm. Now let's shift a little bit and talk a little bit about the effects of the gospel. Now in verse 9, Paul revisits his earlier line of thought. I don't know if you noticed that. He, he starts out in verses 3 and 4 talking about how he continually prays for them. He kind of takes this div- uh, a slight diversion tour through the gospel and what it means and how Epaphras brought it to them. And then in verse nine, he comes back talking about their prayers for the Colossians, when he says, "And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding." Paul's prayers for this community of believers in Coloss wasn't for prosperity. It wasn't that their every need be met. It wasn't that their lives be trouble-free, but he and the other believers with him prayed constantly that the Colossian believers would be filled, meaning no room for anything else, completely filled with the knowledge of God's will as it pertained to spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see, what what isn't clear to us now, but we'll understand later on in the letter, but Paul already knows as he's writing the letters, is that the Colossians appear to be dealing with two issues— which is why he's writing them this letter. They, and these two issues are born out of the context we talked about in the earlier part, the Jewish-Greco-Roman cultural mix that they are in. On one hand, they are starting to adopt and starting to believe and starting to practice uh, uh, that they need to add works and rituals and other kind of traditional kind of things of Judaism to make their salvation complete. We've talked about that. Paul is constantly having to fight against that That Judaizers, kind of that thought that yes, Christ is the Messiah, but don't forget the feasts, don't forget circumcision, don't forget, right? All these things. So on one hand, they're pushing and and they're fighting and having to deal with that. And on the other hand, it appears that they are starting to fear the effect that evil spirits can have on their lives. It's interesting, interesting what's happening here in, in Colossus And we can infer from Paul's prayer that the reason that the Colossians are susceptible to these two things, to believing that they needed to add something to Christ to complete their salvation, but then also believing that Christ wasn't enough to protect them from these evil spirits, is because there is a fundamental misunderstanding of God's will as it pertained to their spiritual lives. In short, they are misunderstanding the nature of their salvation, and the completeness of the work of Christ on the cross, and they are misunderstanding their spiritual covering and protection that's now afforded to them by God through the Holy Spirit. This brings me to my third question Have you asked God to give you wisdom and understanding regarding your spiritual life in Him? Probably. How do we don't think like that. I'm including myself. But but we are now walking this new life in the spirit. God, what does that mean? All I know how to do is to walk in the flesh. But now, all of a sudden, I'm being told in the scripture that I have this new life that's in the spirit. So then, God, what does that mean? Fill me with your wisdom as to what that means. Hmm. Or are we just kind of winging it? Following the latest spiritual fads, the latest philosophical, <laughs> philosophical concerns of the day. I'm laughing because last night when I typed it up, I was like, babe, I, I can't say this word. And I was saying uh, philosophical. And I was like, Lord, and I was like, philosophical. And I was like, I'm going to say it like that tomorrow. Bam, here we go. I spoke, <laughs> I spoke that thing into existence. <laughs> Paul goes on to let the Colossians know that the prayers that are being prayed for them aren't just general and generic. They aren't catch-all and casual, but there is a specific outcome that is being prayed for. Paul says first in verse 10 that at a high level, these prayers are being set up so that the Colossians may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's the headline. That's the main tagline, the thesis of the prayer is the main point of the prayer. And in effect, what Paul is saying is, look, because you aren't operating according to God's will as it pertains to your wisdom and understanding of spiritual matters, the effect of that is that your walk, the way you are living your life, isn't worthy of the Lord. And it isn't up to his standard. He isn't pleased with it. Oh, yeah, he still loves you, but he doesn't like what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, you're still his child, but the relationship is strained. You're not representing him well, and he's not happy about it. Paul continues, and it's as if he says, look, Colossians, I know. There are a lot of opinions. I know there are a lot of doctrines. There's a lot of philosophies and ideas and worldviews that are swirling around you. So I don't want you to be confused about what I mean when I say uh, to walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord and to please him. So I'm going to give you a list. And the first thing he puts on this list is that to walk in a way that's worthy of God, to please him, is to bear fruit in every good work. And this sounds like going out and doing good deeds. And we actually like that because we can go do that. I can volunteer more. I can give more. I can help more. These are things that I can do in my own strength. But I don't think that's what Paul is getting at here. And instead, I'd like to direct you to the words of Jesus in John 15 and 5, where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in them, they will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so what I think is is this is more of a call. It's it's not a call for us to get busy doing good in the world. And I'm not saying that doing good in the world is bad, but don't miss, don't confuse doing good in the world as being an effect, an outcome, a, a byproduct of the gospel at work in your life. And I think this is more a call for believers to abide, to remain, to stay in, to continue in Christ. And when we do that, Christ says, I'll then work through you so that your life will bear much fruit. Second, Paul says, is an increasing in the knowledge of God. Enough cannot be said about this. There is a general lack of biblical knowledge among the people of God. And I have to say, as a whole, we're satisfied with it. We'll acknowledge it and at the same time say, what you going to do? And I'm not talking about being able to. Translate Greek and Hebrew. I'm not talking about knowing the difference between biblical and systematic theology, but just knowing for yourself what thus saith the Lord. Just spending time in God's Word for yourself. And because of the disinterest that the so called people of God have for the Word of God, we no longer can stand and speak truth to the world. But instead, we accept as truth what the world speaks to us and try to then take that and jam it into the church. Because we have no guards at the door. We have no one who knows what the word says. Look, some of the most eloquent and educated folks about what the Bible says and where it came from and what it means are people who do not believe it is the authoritative word of God. You meet one of them on the street, and you'll be walking home questioning your faith because they know more about the God you claim, we claim, I claim, saved my soul. Now, I don't know if you've ever met one, <laughs> but they're out there. You meet I'm telling you, you meet some black Hebrew Israelites somewhere. And you'll be coming back saying, that made some sense. (laughs) Can I, I know I'm going long, I'm sorry, but can I just, guys, we, I talked about salvation. This moment and point in time where Christ saved us. And I think part of the problem is, is because we we present that salvation and we tell people a, a, a nice, cute story about how to be saved, and then we release them into the battle. But we don't ever really talk about kingdoms of darkness, kingdoms of light, we don't talk about that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, rulers in high places. And so when we leave that moment feeling good about what it is that we just committed to, and then all of a sudden Satan says, bop, pop, pop!" I don't even know if I'm saved anymore. I don't know if I can believe the word of God anymore. All this stuff. And it's because we treat lightly. Remember the gospel, the context of the gospel is a messenger returning from a battlefield to tell us that your God reigns. And once we say, he is my king, it's like registering with, <laughs> we've registered for the draft and our number is up. And guess what? Yeah, not everybody is ready to be on the front line. You just joined, you just with Christ, you got to learn, you got to walk, you got to grow. You've been walking with 5, 10, 15, 20 years. You ought to be a general by now. Able to help those who are coming on the battlefield. Keep your head down, but you don't have to fear. We've got a plan. Oh, did I tell you that we've actually already won? (laughs) Yeah. But we've got some kingdom business to take care of. We've got to take back some territory. Is it a wonder that the main story of the Old Testament is the people of God going into the land that God promised them and taking it back piece by piece? Is it that God is telling us something in the natural about what he's doing in the supernatural? Third, Paul says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Simply put, this is about how we move through trials and tribulations. I'm going to just tell you right now, for all of this excitement and sweat and glory that I'm doing, I don't handle trials and tribulations well. You might be like, how in the world is that possible? I'll tell you how it's possible because I'm constantly trying to figure it out. What do I need to do next? How do I solve this problem? What move do I need to make? What strategy do I need to employ? I do not wait well. Me. Standing here preaching to you about what thus saith the Lord. Salvation, sanctification. He's working that out in me. And this verse is about how we rely on ourselves sometimes. But instead, we should be relying on him. We should be looking to the one who has all power to bring to bear that power in our lives so that we can endure, so that we can be patient with all joy. That sounds familiar. Mm, James 1 and 15, 5 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Lastly, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, verse 12, to share in the inheritance of the saints in life, in light, rather. A life that is worthy of the Lord and pleases him is marked by thanksgiving. Not that everything in your life is exactly how we want it to be. Not that you are healthy, not that you are financially fit and debt-free, not that you are happily married or single and satisfied, but thankful and grateful that God has made it possible for you and I to share in the inheritance of the saints. And this brings me to question four, are you walking? Are we walking in a manner worthy of the Lord in a way that is pleasing to him? Finally, verses 13 and 14, we have here what I believe is a restatement of the gospel in three aspects. This is so beautiful. God, verse 13, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. In the Greek, it actually reads, I like it how it reads in the Greek better. He rescued us from the authority of darkness. Key words being rescued and authority. Rescue lets us know that we needed help. We were in a situation where we could not do for ourselves and and, and what needed to be done. And those, right, and this word in the Greek actually carries with it the idea not of just somebody rescuing you, But it carries with it the idea of uh, of God reaching out. (laughs) He didn't throw us a life preserver. But in the Greek, it, it, it says that it's reaching out to draw one to oneself. So he reaches out. He reaches us in where we are, and he draws us to himself. The authority part of the verse or the domain lets us know that we weren't just in the wrong place at the wrong time. We hadn't just lost our way. We hadn't just hit some tough times, but we were under the authority of darkness. We were in bondage. What sin manifested in the desires of our flesh, we did. Then it says God has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Listen to the language here. The Greek verb for transfer has its roots in the word that means to put or to place. So Paul is saying, look, God rescued us. He reached down to wherever you were and he drew you out and drew you to himself. And then he placed you into the kingdom of his son. Well, wait a minute. I didn't need to perform. I didn't need to do something. I didn't have to. No, no, no. He drew you out to himself and then placed you in the kingdom of his son. Mm. and this is good this is good because this is liberation imagery this is set the captives free imagery this is let my people go imagery finally it says in verse 14 that in christ we have redemption the forgiveness of sins and finally in this beloved son we have been redeemed And here Paul equates redemption with forgiveness of sins. In other words, we have been liberated. We've been set free from the bondage of sin because a payment was made on our behalf. Yeah, yeah. Remember back when we said, well, wait a minute. Didn't I have to do something to get placed in the kingdom of God? He said, no, you didn't have to do something because Christ paid it all. Christ's death on the cross redeemed you and me from the penalty of sin and death. Now, look, that was long. I acknowledge it was long. Somebody said amen. I hear you, amen. And my conclusion today is simply an invitation to accept the gospel. Not the cute gospel that we learned in Sunday school And again, I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I'm not trying to make anybody feel upset or, or, Charles, you know, this is my tradition. What I'm saying is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, doesn't have me at the center, but it has Christ at the center as becoming king over everything do you understand that before christ did what he did we were in another kingdom we were in the kingdom of darkness you you see it's so funny how we do this people say i don't want to bow the knee to christ as king you are bowing the knee to a king you are already bowing to a king the question is is where will your king stand on the final day when the messenger comes up over the hill what will be the message Isaiah says the message will be your God reigns so the gospel of Jesus Christ is understanding that I have been in the wrong kingdom and Christ has been enthroned as the rightful king and it's interesting, right? We live in a political climate where people uh, say, oh, this person's my president. This person ain't my president. Well, Christ does not care whether you think he's king or not. And I know that's so. Jesus doesn't care. No. You know why he doesn't care? Because a day is coming when every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess. See, we care about that because we need to be validated and we need people to pour into us and to affirm us and to tell us who we are. Christ knows who He is. He offers us an opportunity to get on board. That train has left the station. He is setting things right. The new kingdom. When Christ came out of the wilderness, the first thing He said is, Hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. (laughs) You you got to read your Bible and read this stuff and see it. Jesus was letting people know something new has come. You've been under the power and influence of old kingdoms, of powers of darkness. But I'm telling you, the kingdom of God is at hand. If you're wondering what that kingdom looks like, Follow me and watch as I start healing the sick and casting out demons and settling the storm, calming the water. Oh, I can walk on the water too. I'll raise a couple of people back from the dead, but that's just a foreshadow of what's coming for everybody who the Father draws out to himself and places in my kingdom. That's a gospel. That I have you out trying to tell everybody about Jesus. That's a gospel that'll make you walk differently not because of some good stuff he did back then but because he sits on the throne right now. Now it's different I didn't say nothing about the doors of the church being open I didn't say is there one that's the gospel Jesus is king and if you align yourself with his kingdom a result of being a citizen in his kingdom is forgiveness of sin is victory over death is newness of life oh and guess what on that last day we get to rule with him amen 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 Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I I acknowledge you, King Jesus. I know you don't need my acknowledgement, but I magnify you, God. I, I declare in front of everyone that you are my king. I bow the knee before you, God. Pledge my loyalty and my devotion to you, King Jesus, that you may have your way in my life. It is no longer my will, but your will that must be done. You are setting all things right. You are returning one day to claim back to yourself your bride, the church. God, make in us all things new. Create in us a clean spirit, a contrite heart. Let us walk in the spirit, not in the flesh, so that your kingdom breaks forth in our lives and in the lives of those who we come in contact with. God, I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray that this message will not leave us alone alone. I pray that it will be with us when we lay our heads on the pillow, when we wake up in the morning, when we are eating breakfast, when we are going through our routines at work, at school, when we're laughing and talking. Let it be in the back of our minds. Is Jesus your king? Chase us, God. Rescue us, God. Place us in the kingdom of your beloved son so that then we may represent you well. In Jesus' name I pray. You've been listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast, and we trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at solidword.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week.